0: most people as like new anatomy but I think that's exactly what needs to happen is everything becomes like you said with the atom more well defined and then intervention will improve um I just we're going to have to start rounding up soon but I think when Marion's actually really trying to grow a whole malformation unit in the children's hospital and Marion you're getting funding Wonderful. you said as well then. well we hope we so, hope to
1: so. I nothing's
0: concrete concrete <laughs> Um, do you have any advice on that, on her setting that up? And, and if I can maybe
1: chip in, maybe also, you know, approach to a complex patient, like a patient with triple to naughty syndrome, you know, where does one start? <laughs>
0: Welcome to another Radcliffe Vein podcast. I'm your host, Laura Redman, a vascular surgeon in Cape Town, South Africa, and the topic today is vascular malformations, which is an area of medicine that is growing not only in understanding, but in treatment as well. They've once managed rather conservatively, many surgeons and interventional radiologists are now taking a much more aggressive approach with remarkable outcomes. So I'd like to proudly introduce you to Professor Wayne Yakes, who's an interventional radiologist and neuroradiologist from the United States, and he has dedicated his entire practice to treating just vascular malformations. And he also works in centers worldwide helping centers to manage these malformations. I have the pleasure of meeting Wayne in Switzerland when there were a few experts doing cases together and observed. Marion Arnold is a pediatric surgeon at Red Cross Children's Hospital here in South Africa. And she also has an interest in vascular malformations and has visited the Boston Children's Hospital to gain some insight there. So Wayne, you pioneered new definitive approaches for vascular malformations and the use of using ethanol for embolizations. um, Can you just start by telling us your story on developing all these options and how successful your outcomes are? Because in a lot of centers, people still tend to treat more conservatively.
2: Well, uh, it's like all things in medicine. Whenever we have a victory in a disease process, it's because we've defeated it at the cellular level. If you have a malignancy, uh, you defeated it at the cellular level to make those cells not be malignant, or go at trees or resect. And that's the same thing in vascular malformations. The offending cell is what's called the endothelial cell. And that lines all vascular lumens, whether It's an artery, a vein, lymphatic, whatever it is. And whenever it senses decreased oxygen tension and we put in an onyx or a glue or a PVA or something, it senses decreased oxygen and it wants to fix that. And how it fixes it is by sending out two factors. One is uh, angiogenesis factor and that causes a neovascular stimulation to the area and that's what we see down the line as the new blood vessels come in to revascularize. And the other is chemotactic cellular factor. And that causes macrophages to go from extracellular to intravascular and actually remove debris. And there are very many pathologic slides showing glue and onyx and pieces in these cells as they take them extravascularly. And that's the process we call recanalization. So between recanalizing it after embolization and uh, neovascular stimulation is what's always defeated us. But if we can defeat that endothelial cell, those two processes are now noticeably absent. And then we can have permanence of an occlusion and a cure. Mm, Thank you. Hope that makes a little sense.
1: (laughs) Uh, No, it makes a a lot of sense.
0: Um, And realistically, though, because even here, I think Marion and I, we sort of met because she was doing children's hospital in the public sector and I'm in private. Um, But generally, patients are still managed conservatively as a first line priority. We're starting to be more aggressive after I spend time with you. But what about your take then on sirolimus or other medical agents to help still at a cellular level?
2: I think anything that helps us is great. Uh, But to take, uh, um, like say, serolimus, well, do we relegate a human to that for the rest of their life? That's a a thing to consider. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I think today in many centers, it's either invalid treatment or serolimus. And I am the exact opposite philosophy, give seroleumus, but why not treat and get them off the medicine? Cure the thing. Mm. If it helps, it makes it better, wonderful. And if we can finally get rid of it, why take any pills at all?
0: Yeah, no, I fully agree with that. I also see it as more of an adjunctive procedure, because often then, when you start treating the malformations, it seems to stimulate further angiogenesis in, that in some patients in some areas.
2: And it does by that way, I, I spoke to you, by that mechanism. So if mm-hmm. we use sclerosin agents such as ethanol, then you destroy the endothelial cell, you precipitate its protoplasm, and you strip it from the vascular wall. So now that cell is not there to sense decreased oxygen tension, and it can no longer send out angiogenesis factor or chemotactic cellular factor. So now you have mm-hmm. a permanence and a, of occlusion and a cure. You know, I wrote a paper back in 2015 and uh, it was a, in response to using, uh, uh, they asked me to do a review of it for using uh, bleomycin and head and neck malformations. Then they asked if I would do a review article of the various types of, of uh, agents. And all agents that are used, uh, all sclerosins and uh, bleomycin, et cetera, we're in the 60 to 80 percent efficacy range in all published reports and ethanol is in the 90 to 100 percent efficacy range there are two papers out there one out of canada but that it's tough to make any uh determination scientifically because there's only 17 patients comparing alcohol and other agents but there is one out of china that is very interesting a couple of years ago and it has uh, 138 patients divided between ethanol and, ble- and uh, use of bleomycin. And they developed uh, four categories. One is cure. The next mm-hmm. is a significant ablation of uh, over 90%. Next is effective, uh, significantly effective. effective. Which is probably less than fifty percent, and then non-effective. So they had four categories. They put the patients in, in the two groups of bleomycin and ethanol, and in the ethanol group, seventy-one of seventy-four patients were either cure or significantly effective. So that means ninety percent or hundred, in the you know the vast majority, and in the bleomycin group, uh, they had sixty-three patients, I believe. And of those, only 41 were in effective and zero in cure and zero in significantly effective in their series. So again, again, this points one more journal article showing the comparative efficacies of the various agents for in use for treating these malformations.
0: Yeah, no, it does make complete sense. Um, Marion, do you want to give a little bit of, Inside into what you learned in Boston. Completely different along the, s- <clears throat> the same lines.
1: Well, I mean, I think for me it was quite an eye opener just to see the variety of things that are available. You know, coming from a centre where you know we're still excited about propenal for hemangiomas, and then sort of you know um, where we're still only just trying to sort of advance or from it was really just phenomenal to see the, the many different options that people are using um, to to occlude blood vessels basically and, and um, try and improve function and, and cosmesis. I think um, I didn't see that much use of, of alcohol. I saw a lot of, you know, I was only there for three weeks, so I saw, saw various things being done, um, quite a lot of, quite a huge variety of, of things actually, and I, I sometimes sort of got the sense and maybe that was just, you know, for me as an outsider who's not seen the long-term progress of patients that people are just sometimes trying anything, you know, to sort of try and get uh, improvement, especially in complex lesions that have been managed over a long period of time. Um, I think always when a lot of different things are being used and there's not just one thing that does point to a very complex, challenging disease for which we don't yet have all the answers. And I think that's where... Um, sort of single centers with, um, you know, the depth of experience um, over multiple patients over multiple periods of time are, are so crucial to making advances in the field. And I, and I still have left with a lot, lot of questions still. So I'm very interested to in hearing what you're saying about alcohol, and it makes me ask, is there still a place for bleomycin? We've always used bleomycin as ask a serotherapy agent of choice. Um, partly just from um, being nervous in children about things like extravasation and skin necrosis and so on. And um, so particularly in areas like the neck we, where we see a, a lot of um, particularly lymphatic um, malformations, do you think it still has a role?
2: The use of ethanol?
1: Of bleomycin, of do you think it still has a role oh. or would you just use it for, for everything?
2: Obliomycin has a role in the low flow malformations, uh, but again it's in the 60 to 80 percent efficacy range and almost never in the curative range. And that, that, that's law, that big series out of China shows that to advantage. When I wrote my paper a review article of all the embolic agents used in high flow and low flow malformations, and my title was a world in endovascular chaos because everybody's doing everything and nobody's comparing anything to anything. And, oh, I'm trying this today and this tomorrow. And well, it's tough to get any science out of any of that. But what we do know is no matter the paper, no matter the series ethanol, because of its defeat of the cellular, at the cellular level of the cells has the highest efficacy and the highest curative rate. So that's why I uh, use that exclusively. And uh, we have an example we've reviewed and a uh, hundred patients Consecutively, uh, with arteriovenous malformations, and we kept it below the neck anywhere, not, not the head and neck area, not in the facial area. And in that patient series, we have 23 of them that were failures at other major university institutions in the United States that were referred using glues and onyx and other things. And in all 23 patients, we cured those patients using ethanol. There wasn't a failure, and you know we're we're looking at over eighty to ninety percent cure rate in that one hundred. This is consecutive. There's no cherry picking. There's a hundred consecutive patients, so in that series, then it was statistically significant, and they were divided into the various Yanks type AVM classifications, and the efficacy of each type of AVM was uh, reviewed. So it, it's. You know, it it was also, I had two outside reviewers look at this rather than me, so there's no inherent bias in viewing what's secure and what is not, and also classifying the various types of AVMs. I have Bob Vogelzang, who's a past president of the Society of Interventional Radiology from Northwestern in Chicago, and very experienced, and uh, Kras Ivanchov from Europe, who uh, they, and, uh, Uh, Fiona Rolf, the vascular surgeon from Hamburg, and they evaluated all this and decided what was cured, what is isn't, what the classification is. So I thought that uh, kept it pretty independent. Mm.
0: I think as well, Marion, to add to that, so I originally, um, when I started doing malformations, contacted Professor Iris Baumgartner, who's going to join today. In switzerland and i think she learned from you um, wayne and she she said to me to always use alcohol but she gave me her protocols because obviously it's a higher risk and a lot of people advise against it for complications but if it's done um you know in a safe manner given the steroids slow injections the complications are less but then on the other hand wayne you've also got incredible experience because Um, I think, I mean, that comes more with the ABMs to just inject alcohol, you could get disastrous results. So I've seen Wayne inject things where we wouldn't have a clue where to go. (laughs) But that comes from all your experience and numbers,
2: I would think. Well, it's true. Uh, I was lecturing in Leipzig and we had a meeting and they were wondering, one of the questions from the audience was, why aren't more people using alcohol? And it it was almost in an angry tone by one of the uh, (laughs) attendees. And I looked around, I said, I see about 20 uh, interventional fellowship directors here, maybe more that I don't know. And obviously everybody here is interventional vascular surgery. And I said, of you that are training your people, how many of you have trained them in the use of alcohol? Not one hand went up. So those of you who are fellows or have been trained, were you ever trained in the use of alcohol as an embolic agent? Not one hand Mm -hmm. went up. I said, well, it's very difficult to have people go do things if they were never exposed to it. Because now when you're in practice, now you're responsible, you're not the trainee anymore. So I think that is one of the big issues is that our training programs are not doing what they should be doing with the use of ethanol as an embolic agent. We can use it in other things besides of uh, vascular malformations. It is curative for varicocele. It is curative for renal uh pelvic congestion syndrome. There are so many things that it can be used, uh, other things to use uh, for ethanol, uh, cystic lesions and making them go away. Hepatic cysts, other cysts, post-operative cysts, sclerosing them and having them. So there's many other things besides malformations that ethanol is effective in that there's not training people with and that's a shame
0: yeah i think part of that is the awareness i think that's also when i started chatting with marion um because i had visited well in switzerland and met you we came from a vascular side and said well intervene in most patients but i think uh, in most areas yeah everyone was a bit afraid hey marion
1: I also think that there's a bit of maybe a misapprehension regarding re- the you know, rheology of of um vascular malformations, and we all sort of think you know injecting pure alcohol into a patient doesn't sound like a good idea. You just worry that the patient's going to get alcohol poisoning and i and I think you know I'm just starting to appreciate that that you know we we are seeing you know from even just things like biomycin that even though we know that it's got systemic toxicity that those patients don't necessarily have, you know, if you, t- you know, do levels of demycin um, or, you know, monitor them long-term, they don't necessarily get um, pulmonary fibrosis, although the risk is theoretically there. So there isn't the same level of systemic absorption, even though you're injecting something into the bloodstream as what you, you think. And I think that's just, you know, the, the rheology of vascular b- malformations is different to the normal, blood system as well and i think that's something that's that's tricky to appreciate Um, but it's you know it's a a malformation it's not normal flow it's um you know there's often we know a lot of these patients end up with flebulus and things like that so there's stasis within the vessels and i think there's a lot of skill involved also in trying to manage um the the injection the process so that you can keep it within the part of the body that you you want to to kill basically kill those cells Um, and, and so. It is something that, that I think one does need training and, and appreciation for. And so you know, I'm really hoping that we can learn you know um, through your skills, Laura, <laughs> uh, which you've, you've got from others, um, that we can learn how to do these things in safe ways because it definitely makes huge difference to patients who previously were basically just left to get complications because we were too scared to intervene. Uh, we were worried, you know, first do no harm in medicine, and and I think we understanding that not doing something is is in itself, it can also lead to harm.
0: Yeah, and I, I think taking every aspect, so I actually remember I asked you, when about a girl I had with a lymphatic malformation, um, but it wasn't limb or life-threatening, and you mentioned in a child the psychosocial effect it can have, you know, which we actually can't ignore, it's a huge for a child, even, you know, if it's not symptomatic in that way. So it's definitely worth us growing the skill, I think. And the other thing I wanted to bring up, which is a bit hard in state. So when we have um, public and private sectors and they function so differently, um, and the one thing Marion will have issues with is theater time. So these patients need to come back repeatedly, like monthly for quite a a large number. Um, It's probably one of the biggest issues.
2: Well, one of the issues we find with universities anesthesia cuts you off at three o'clock, so that limits what you can do in a day. At my institution, uh, they're not on salary, so they're asking me, oh, "Do we have another case to do?" So it's 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 a different world in the private sector versus the university sector, with mm-hmm. regards to patient throughput and how many you can do in a day. I was just in Cairo, and we were doing. 25 to 30 patients a day, you know, Christmas and New Year's week. We did 161 patients in seven days. In September, I did 171 patients there in uh, five days. Uh, The last day, I did 40 cases, finished at midnight, caught the 2.15 a.m. flight from Cairo to Zurich. They picked me up by car in Zurich and drove to Bern. That's where I met you, Laura. And I yeah. uh, did five cases that morning the other day, and then yeah. that was all on Thursday, so uh, that was a fun day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that is remarkable. Um, and on average, Wayne, how many times from, I mean, you've got the extensive um, history of patients, how many times do they normally need to come back before you would say they're cured? And by cured, do you oh. mean there's no flow on angiogram?
2: Whenever, uh, if it's a low flow venous and lymphatic malformation and we're at end treatment, it's malformations 95% or plus gone or 100%, we follow them annually by MR. So that's an easy follow-up. Now, the high flow malformations, we do follow with MR, but we also follow with arteriography because there are subtle things that can be missed on shunts and stuff on an MR that you will only pick up by arteriography so okay. we, we follow those patients annually as well and after about five to eight years if it's still gone then maybe we can go to every two to three years or every five years but we follow them up uh you know my longest right now our tear follow-up uh i'd say a shoulder avm uh that was published in the in the journal of vascular interventional radiology a paper out of yale and they use glue and they said they're incurable even with a quarter resection they get the shoulder off and it recurred in the stump hmm. and that's usually the case with uh, using uh, glue and onyx and all those sorts of things and we've cured everyone. and this patient had a massive one of the shoulder and chest wall and at 27 years arteriographic follow-up it's still cured and sure. just did a follow-up at 24 years of a brain avian uh, now Brain AVMs, Spencer Martin grade, and it was of a higher grade, grade four, which is about a 60, 70% surgical morbidity. And in a neurosurgical morbidity, it's stroke and death. <laughs> it's not some mm. little thing, you know. And we are able to, to cure that and have a long term follow up in it. There's really only two papers in the world's literature utilizing ethanol to treat brain AVMs. Mine was the first in 1997 of the Journal of Neurosurgery. And then UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, came out with one in, uh, let's see, 2018, I believe. And they loved it. So there's two papers out there on the topic of its curative nature with regards to the uh, intracranially. Uh, But again, a lot of people shy away because they haven't had much experience using it.
0: It's just a teaching thing. And if I may ask them, with venous malformation, so if you were treating one, would you treat until a point the size is reduced and the patient's happy, even if there were a few channels or pockets open, and then follow them up for growth and inject according to that?
2: Uh, I usually try to go for a more complete ablation because I have seen one of two things happen. Either what's left Stays the same, mm. and never grows. And I, you see that annually at MR follow-up, or I've seen it grow and have some recurrent symptoms in that area. And these are with the massive ones, the ones that extend from the buttock to the foot, <laughs> or something like that. Mm. Uh, and so I usually try to go for a greater than ninety percent ablation, if not complete. And uh, and then some patients say, you know, I feel good now. And they make the decision saying, no, let, let's just wait. And I go, I can't argue that point. If you, we've got you to a, a clinical level that you're asymptomatic and you're happy despite having some left, let's just follow you annually with MR. And if there's a change, you see a growth, we can, we're always there to ablate that. Uh, or if nothing ever happens, well, we just keep following you. So. I sometimes uh, there's things that I say, I think we need to move forward. And there are times when the patient says, well, I think I feel fine. Let's just watch it for now. So and I think both approaches are valid.
0: Okay. Fantastic. And is there any malformation you wouldn't treat?
2: The key with malformations is, is that if we look at it on the angioarchitecture aspect with high flow malformations, let's say, what is the definition of an arteriovenous malformation? It's an artery to vein connection without an intervening capillary bed. So if that's the case, that means there's nothing nutritive because that's the capillary level where you have the oxygen exchange and everything else. Uh, nutrients go into the cell, come out of the cell. And if capillary beds are spared and there's no injury to them, there's a lot you can do taking away these non-functional blood vessels. But then there's other things that can happen. You can have uh, swelling related to the acute thrombosis. Sometimes that can have an effect on tissues. And uh, even though the capillary beds are intact and you've not violated any of that, swelling and that sort of thing may have an impact on tissues. Uh, so then you would err towards doing less rather than doing more and stretching it out over more procedures to minimize that swelling issue. So uh, one area that is very difficult would be spinal cord, intramedullary lesions. Swelling in the spinal cord, it's, it's not a very forgiving tissue. But I know of cases where they've used it and they cured the thing and they were fine. But again, I caution them to do less and go back more times rather than try to get it all at once, have an area of edema and then have an injury, you know. So I think there's judgment in those tissues. But other areas, I I don't, you know, I I hate to buy a patient a procedure because they're under general anesthesia. They're under endovascular procedure. It doesn't matter what embolic agent you use, there's complication rates. And I hate to put them all in that situation and not have them have the potential for cure. So I always lead towards what is the best for them and what is the best chance for this going away and making the symptoms go away. And that's why I've always used ethanol. Now I have used other agents. Sometimes I'll use glue or onyx, but that is in a protective way to block blood vessels that go to normal tissues so that everything just goes into the AVM. So that's called protective embolization, not for a cure of the lesion, but to protect other tissues, coils, onyx, I've, I've done those sorts of things. But for treating the malformation, again, it comes to treating it at the cellular level, having the endothelial cells destroyed, and then you uh, have a permanence chance for cure. I hope some of that made some sense.
0: No, complete sense. Yeah, it did. Um, I think also, and while we're on this podcast, maybe you can just give us your, your overview of your classification you created and why you did it in, in that format.
2: Uh, well, uh, over the years, I've been working on this, and now I've finally come to a conclusion about this 100 patients. And uh, a classification system, there has been several out there. Emmanuel Houdar and his team from La raboisie in Paris. They're uh, uh neuroradiologists, neuroradiologist, uh, endovascular neurosurgery. We have several names for that specialty now. And uh, they run that center. Uh, that's a wonderful place. I've been there and I've done cases there his prior professor that trained him, Professor Jean-Jacques Merlon, was uh, invited me there years ago. And uh, done cases there. And he came out with a classification system of high flow malformations for the CNS. And then uh, a guy I trained out in Korea, Yong Sudo in Seoul, came out with a peripheral AVM classification. Uh, Emmanuel Hudar, I believe it was 1993 when he published his, and uh soo Do, I think it was 2006. Don't hold me exactly those years, but that's about the ballpark. And uh, they're identical actually. They're just, they're not much difference. But I've discovered that there are many, there are several other angio architectures and uh, I've done a refinement on the system. It's kind of like uh, uh, the Niels Bohr model for the atom. He did a but electrons, protons, and neutrons, and he is dead right. But as we've grown, we've found other particles over time. Those are still there, but there's more refinements of his system. And that's how I've approached it to have all the various angio architectures rather than some excluded. Those are correct and they're accurate, but there's others as well. So uh, we have a type one which is a direct connection between artery and vein. We see those uh, in pulmonary AVMs, sometimes renal AVMs. Sometimes in a big complex AVM, you will have direct connections like that within it. So you can have several architectures within one lesion. So that's the type one, we have a direct artery to vein connection, single. And then a type two, uh, you have an A and a B. Now the A is when you have multiple arteries coming in and they go in to a nidus. It's like a ball, let's say, and it has multiple, it's just arteries, and vein connections. And then they have from this ball, multiple outflow veins. So that's your typical nidus. And it actually the Latin term should be nidum. Some guy thought he knew Latin, and then now we're stuck with nidus, which is um, masculine. And it's actually neuter. And it means nest in Latin. So it's an accurate term, but it could be nida, nidi, not nidus, nida. Or the female, nida, nida you know, but, but I don't think we're going to get rid of the word nidus because we have nidus infection. AVM, I don't think we're ever going to get have the correct word ever go into the world's literature. But the, But I digress. So, so we have the nitus with the arteries coming in and the veins coming out. Then there's another type of two where you have the nitus coming in, but instead of multiple outflow veins, you have a single aneurysmal vein. That's not been described in the world's literature. Then that's the type two with the nitus type with multiple veins coming out and the other type B, which has one aneurysmal vein coming out of a nidus. Then you have the type 3 where you have a vein aneurysm and the nidus is in the vein wall. So you have multiple arteries coming in and the nidus and the shunts are in the vein wall and you have an outflow vein and they have an A and a B of that. And A is a single aneurysm with a single outflow vein. The B is an aneurysm. Again, the fistulas are there and you may have several outflow veins from that aneurysm rather than a single one. So that would be a type B. Then you have the type four, which has not been described in the world's literature as well, where you have an infiltration of a tissue with AVM. And what is the definition of an AVM? An artery to vein connection without capillaries in between. That's why you have a high to low shunt. Capillaries are a check valve. That's you know, the red cells go through like a stack of coins on that. And uh, that's why veins are low pressure and arteries are high pressure. But when you have an artery-vein connection, the veins are arterialized because there's no intervening capillary bed. Well, in the type four, you have an added problem because you have multiple fistula, usually microfistula, but that tissue exists. So what, by definition, does that mean? Despite having a diffuse infiltration like an ear AVM, you see those things, the whole damn ear is full of fistulas. It has, despite that, capillary beds, otherwise that ear would be black, dead, because there'd be no nutrient, no oxygen exchange. But by definition, would that not be so? So there's capillary, that's a different form is you have fistulas admixed with capillaries. So that's a little bit different horse trying to treat. <laughs> so I had to figure that one out. And, and then the system worked, how to fix those and cure those as well. So uh, so those are the, the classification system. One, a direct AV connection. Two, having a nidus, where there are multiple outflow veins or a single aneurysmal outflow vein. Three, you have a vein aneurysm where the nidus is in the vein wall itself and you have a single outflow vein or several veins from that aneurysm. And four, an infiltration of a tissue, we have fistulas admixed with capillary beds. So that's what I think are the, I don't think there's any other type I've ever seen that could not be put into those categories. And you're gonna have sometimes in a massive lesion, several of those NGO architectures going on at the same time.
0: For most people, it's like new anatomy, but I think that's exactly what needs to happen is everything becomes, like you said, with the atom, more well-defined and then intervention will improve. Um, I just We're gonna to have to start rounding up soon, but I think when Marion's actually really trying to grow a whole malformation unit in the children's hospital, and Marion, you're getting funding, Wonderful. you said as well. Okay? Well we hope
1: so. we hope to. It's nothing
0: nothing's in concrete. <laughs> um, do you have any advice on that on her setting that up? And and
1: if I can maybe chip in, maybe also you know, approach to a complex patient, like a patient with triple chinae syndrome, you know, where does one start?
2: Okay. I don't like these terms like cloppical channel, Parks, Weber, the various syndromes, because what do they tell me? Nothing. If I say I have a patient and in the buttock thigh, knee, and leg, there are diffuse areas of venous malformation involving the quadriceps femoris muscle group, the buttock area, the knee joint, and there are no high flow malformations, just venous malformation. Now I know what I'm dealing with. If I say clip will turn I don't know what I'm dealing with. So I like more specific things about what the malformations are specifically and the anatomies that they're involving. Because I'm an old army guy. Yeah, I'm an airborne <laughs> ranger, you know, airborne death from above, ranger kill them all, let God sort them out. And uh, remember Rangers took out uh, Baghdadi from ISIS. And then what they do the next day? They took out number two. Say who wants to step up in in Iraq. Well anyway, in the military, you know, you you've got to know your enemy or you can never defeat him. And the more we can define that enemy, that means the more we know that enemy, and now we have a good chance of defeating that enemy. And the same thing is true in malformations. If we know what the lesion is and in what anatomy it's being involved, then we can explain on how to treat. If I use generic terms, I don't know what they mean, to be honest. Now, now we say can Parks Weber. Okay, what is that? Well, that's big limb, some fistulas, and low flow malformation it's a mixture well if i say there's a buttock avm and a knee avm of bone and there's venous malformations and the hamstring muscles and in the anterior and lateral compartments then i know what i'm dealing with rather than uh, it's parks Weber syndrome. so I, I like more descriptive terms of what's going on and having that in the chart rather than just a generic term, which I don't know really what tissues are involved. So that's how we run things. I know in most institutions, they have a meeting monthly usually and they have the various specialists there and they discuss cases. Well, sometimes people get tired of that. They may not be asked many questions. They may not show up for further meetings or things like that. Uh, I do things differently When a patient sends something for consult, I do all evaluation. I make the diagnosis, tissues involved, and decide what specialists should be involved in the care of that patient. Pediatric, pediatric surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, plastic surgeon, vascular surgeon, whatever uh, needs to be done with dermatology, whatever. Hematology with regards to medications of seroleumus, different things. And then that doctor sees that patient with a history and physical. Diagnosis made, all imaging studies, and they know exactly what they. And I find that they give more of a response to wanting to treat a patient rather than showing up at a meeting where they may not be asked anything. And uh, and also it's not every month. I see it in less than in three or four days. Uh, the patient's, it's been decided. They don't have to wait a month to see what everybody thinks. So that's how I've done my system for evaluating these patients. And, you know, everybody does things the way they want to do them. But I think my system is the most efficient for getting back to the patient and getting them treated around there sitting and waiting for a month. Uh, what are we going to do for them? And you have a team because I, I uh, and the, my surgeons love it. They know exactly what they need to do. They got the diagnosis. No head scratching. They talk to the patient specifically about their role. Anesthesia talks to them about their role, and uh, we move on quickly.
1: Nice. That's, that's yeah. I think I think that's, there's a lot of value in that. And I think knowing your team and and being able to direct it is is um, sounds like it's uh, you know helps to streamline things a lot for patients as well. So thank you.
2: I think so. You know, just like any team, you've got to have a head to direct things rather than a, a conglomeration, nobody leading, and then, then things can get lost.
0: So, Marion, you've got to dictate there. <laughs>
1: um,
0: well, I mean, I, I think, you know, we're learning, and I think one of the
1: values of having a team meeting where everybody's there is that everybody can learn, especially when, you know, something's a, sort of growing um, a field. Uh, but I do think people do easily get get fatigued and and confused. You know, if, if nobody really um, has a handle on a patient, then people sort of feel overwhelmed. Whereas, you know, if one can break down the the um, the problem into bite-sized chunks, then it always always feels like you've you've got a handle on, on and, and are able to solve problems, which makes everybody feel a little bit a little bit happier
0: i um, like Wayne's unit and everyone abroad because you've advanced exponentially. So a lot of that knowledge and everything is actually really exists. Your outcomes are good. We've almost got to replicate it. And w- Wayne, what you said in the beginning is probably a key thing is teaching because no one's taught this thing Um, as we specialized and did surgery and that. So it kind of becomes a responsibility now to pass it on. I think yeah, what you've Most done is...
2: In vascular medicine, we've done so well with atherosclerosis. We've done so well with aneurysm disease. The problem is the malformations. That's the hardest area in vascular medicine, I think, without question. And it's compounded by the fact that they're rare. If they were every day and commonplace, we would trudge through them and get an experience quickly and see what our mistakes were and what we don't want to do again. And Unfortunately, you know, if things go well, we already knew that. It's when things mm. go south, we have to sit there and reevaluate, and that's when we learn something. And mm. with something so rare, if you see five a year, how do you get good at it? anything? you know. So I think yeah. the diff- inherent difficulty plus its rarity compounds the problem.
0: Yeah, that is difficult. But we will keep learning <laughs> anyway we better start wrapping up so thank you so much for joining us and it's super early on your side of the world and for your valuable insight and marion thank you as well for joining from red cross and Wayne, i hope we'll have you over in south africa soon
2: Sure, you're welcome to come out here yes yes all I'll of you
1: come visit.
2: people come thank all you. the
1: time <laughs> Thank you so much. Right. It's, been, it's been wonderful just to uh, get some pools of wisdom, and really just great to know that there's hope for so many of our patients uh, through experience through, through some, somebody like yours with uh, so many years of experience as well.
2: Well, I just got lucky backing into this, and it wound up, I mm-hmm. let all the other stuff go and just do malformations now. instead of being three percent of my progress, that's all I do
0: yeah fantastic no thank you we can learn a lot from you okay so we'll all keep in touch thank
1: you